Thank you for stopping by at the Movie Marquee. Our podcast reviews well-known movies and contains spoilers. The podcast may contain mature subject matter and mature language. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy the show. Quiet on set. Places, everybody. And action. Welcome, everybody, to the movie Marquee. This week on the Marquee is The Princess Bride. And with me are my two co-hosts, Eric. Inconceivable. You keep using that word. I don't believe it means what you think it means. And Ken. I don't think you would accept my help, since I'm only waiting around here to kill you. That does put a damper on our relationship. And, of course, I'm Ingo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Stop saying that! Of course, I'm Ted, and we are here to discuss The Princess Bride this week. Eric, do you have the particulars for The Princess Bride? Yes, I do. Let's have a little fun here. Princess Bride released October 9th, 1987, with a budget of about $16 million, and it grossed a little over $31 million. Not a big success, except for uh, in video, where it just exploded as one of the hot videos of the late 90s. That's where it made all its money. So this movie's got a pretty good cast here. It's starring Carrie Ellis as Wesley, Robin Wright in her debut role as Buttercup, Mandy Patinkin as Anigo Montoya, Billy Crystal as Miracle Max, Carol Kane as Valerie, Wallace Shawn as Vizani, Chris Sarandon as Prince Humble, Andre the Giant as Fezzik, Christopher Guest as Count Rugen, Fred Savage as the annoying little grandson at the beginning, and the great Peter Falk as the grandfather. What do the critics have to say about The Princess Bride, Eric? Well, I'll tell you what, the critics love this movie. Rotten Tomatoes, this thing was certified fresh at 97 with the critics. Audience score of 94. Pretty hard to find anything bad about this movie. I have yet to find anybody that doesn't like the movie. Of the 20 critic reviews I have here, 16 are positive, 4 are mixed, 0 are negative. It's pretty much saying this is a great movie. Uh, The Christian Science Monitor said that Carrie Ellis is marvelously funny as the hero. And the Wall Street Journal said the movie has its own genuine charm and one hilarious high. Billy Crystal and Carol Kane are simply wonderful. Time Magazine said, as you watch this enchanting fantasy, feel free to be thrilled or to giggle as you wish. This time, happily ever after, lasts 98 minutes. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times says it's filled with good-hearted fun, with performances by actors who seem to be smacking their lips and by a certain true innocence that survives all of Reiner's satire. And the Washington Post said, a percolating comedy. The laughs may not tear your belly up, but they're constant and they dovetail with the story. Everyone loves this movie. It makes my heart happy, literally, that all of the critics pretty much like this movie. I I guess we're we're kind of setting up our review here, aren't we? (laughs) 
I'm probably tipping my hand a little bit. A little bit, yeah. My exuberance for this movie is not going to, it's not going to be easy to hide. We'll put it that way. This is one of my favorite movies. So, and I'm so happy and excited to be talking about it. I hope that comes through because I just, this movie makes me feel like a kid again. And Ken, do you have the plot for our wonderful movie, The Princess Bride? I have the cheesy plot for The Princess Bride. Cheesy plot? Cheesy plot. (laughs) A sick boy, who, by the way, owns the first wireless video game controller, is forced to listen to a book read by his grandfather, Columbo. The book begins with a beautiful young woman named Buttercup. Buttercup lives on a farm where she amuses herself by giving the farmhand, Wesley, meaningless tasks to complete, which he complies and answers as you wish. She eventually realizes that he truly means, I love you. Buttercup probably forces Wesley to leave in order to seek fortune so they can get married. Wesley's ship is attacked by the dread pirate Roberts, who is infamous for never leaving survivors, and Wesley is believed to be dead. Five years later, Buttercup amuses herself again by agreeing to marry Prince Humperdinck, who might have a thing for Tyrone. Prince Humperdinck is the heir to the throne of Florin. Before the wedding, she is kidnapped by three outlaws, a short, inconceivable Sicilian boss named Vicini, a unemployed giant from Greenland named Fezzik, and a revenge-seeking fencing master named Inigo Montoya, who seeks revenge against a six-figure man who killed his father. The outlaws are pursued separately by the man in black and Prince Humperdinck with the compliment of merry men. Johnny Cash catches up to the outlaws at the top of the Cliffs of Insanity. He defeats Inigo in a lightsaber duel and knocks him unconscious. Then he chokes Fezzik until he passes out and kills Vicini by poisoning him in a game of wits. The man in black takes Buttercup prisoner and they flee, stopping to rest at the edge of the gorge. When Buttercup correctly guesses that he is the dread pirate Roberts, she becomes enraged at him for killing her true love. When the man in black isn't looking, she shoves him down a hill and wishes death upon him. As he tumbles down, he shouts, As you wish. Realizing Roberts is Wesley, she accidentally trips and falls down the hill and they reunite. Wesley explains that the dread... Whoa, whoa, whoa. This isn't a kissing story, is it? Would you just shut up? Shut up. <laughs> Is that what he says? That, he that or, 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 or excuse me, madam. One or the other. I can't remember. Wesley explains the dread pirate Roberts is actually a title passed on to basically anyone who wants the job and that he had taken the title so the previous Roberts could retire. They pass through the dangerous fire swamp, which is inhabited by big musketeers. But Prince Humperdinck captures them when they emerge. Buttercup agrees to return with Humperdinck if he releases Wesley, which he promises to do, but secretly orders his boyfriend, Count Rugen, to take Wesley to his torture chamber, known as the Pit of Despair. Wesley notices that Rugen has six fingers on his hand before being knocked out. When Buttercup changes her mind again at marrying Prince Humperdinck, he promises to search for Wesley. Humperdinck's real plan is to start a war with the neighboring country of Gilder by killing Buttercup and framing Gilder for her death. Meanwhile, Indigo and Fezzik reunite when Humperdinck orders the thieves arrested for trying to kidnap the governor of Michigan. Fezzik tells Indigo about Rugen. Indigo decides that they need Wesley's help to get into the castle. Buttercup rewrites Humperdinck after learning that he has not tried to find Wesley. Enraged, Prince Humperdinck imprisons Buttercup in her chambers and tortures Wesley to death by playing some old Burt Bacharach tunes. Indigo and Fezzik follow the cries of anguish through the forest. They find Wesley's body and bring him to Miracle Max, whom Max declares that Wesley is only mostly dead due to his true love for Buttercup and revives him, but Wesley is heavily paralyzed. After Wesley, Indigo, and Fezzik invade the castle, Humperdinck panics and orders the wedding ceremony shortened. Indigo finds and kills Rugen in a duel, repeatedly taunting him with his greeting of vengeance. 
Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Wesley finds Buttercup, who is about to commit suicide, assuring her that the marriage is invalid because she never said I do. Still partly paralyzed, he bluffs his way out of a duel with Prince Humperdinck, and they flee the castle. Wesley rides away with Buttercup, Inigo, and Fezzik before sharing a passionate kiss with Buttercup. Back in the boy's bedroom, the boy eagerly asks his grandfather to read the story to him again the next day, to which his grandfather replies, as you wish. The end. Well, thank you, Ken, for that very interesting take on The Princess Bride. I didn't know Johnny Cash was in this. Yeah, I didn't know that there was lightsabers either, but maybe I missed it. It's how I remember the movie, guys. Oh, this this movie's got everyone. Yeah, everyone's literally in it. Even the governor of Michigan. That This is impressive. Yeah, that's a, very impressive. a little bit of a timely reference there. <laughs> so, guys, my experience with seeing this movie for the first time, it's actually kind of an emotional memory for me. Well, how and when did you see the movie for the first time? And do you have any special memories about this movie? I wish I could say I did, but I really don't. I know I probably saw it on VHS rental. I know I didn't see it in the theater, but I couldn't tell you when and where I saw it, probably at home. I do remember always loving this movie, you know, even when I was younger. And as you watch it, it, you just catch some of the more subtle lines more and more every time. And it's one of those movies where you can just watch with anyone, a young child, teenager, a millennial, a 40-something, Peter Falk. I mean, everyone's going to love this movie. I didn't see it in theaters because I don't think anybody really saw it in theaters. I didn't even know about the movie until it was on paid cable channels, probably like HBO or the movie channel or something like that. And I was flipping channels and I saw the sword fight and I was really intrigued with the sword fight because actually I'm a big uh, Robin Hood fan. I love movies about Robin Hood and seeing the sword fighting reminded me of the Errol Flynn classic. But then it wasn't until I saw the next scene when I saw Andre the Giant. And at that time, I was a huge WWF wrestling fan and loved wrestling. And to see Andre the Giant made me watch the rest of it. And then I just waited till it showed up on cable again, especially back in that day, probably the same now. But with paid cable channels, the movie was on probably four or five times a day. And so... I just got attached to it, and it's become a big-time favorite of mine. It's one of those movies that if it's on TV at at any point, I stop and I watch. And I pretty much will watch the rest of the way. It's not like I'll watch for five or ten minutes here and then switch to something else. Once that movie's on and I see it, I'm watching the rest of it. It's funny that you brought up paid cable like Cinemax and HBO. My grandparents had Cinemax. And to this day, that's why I think I've seen Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom more than any of the other Indiana Jones movies. Because when I was little and would go over to my grandma and grandpa's house, it was always on Cinemax, like constantly. You're right, Ken. They would show it like four or five times a day. That brings back such a memory. Ah, the good old days of cable TV. Right, where they didn't have hundreds of movies that they could show at any one time. It's also why I've seen The Empire Strikes Back more than any other of the Star Wars movies. And it's pretty much why I know movies the way I do. I constantly was in front of a TV watching HBO, watching Showtime, watching the movie channel, watching Cinemax, yeah. watching all these channels. And some of these movies I've loved for no particular reason that they just kept on showing it over and over again. This isn't one of those movies, though. This movie is because it is such a well-made film. It's a shame that people didn't get to see it in the movie theater. This should be watched in a theater setting because of how brilliant this movie is. 
That's interesting that you said that, because if you don't mind a little bit of nostalgia on my part. So during the summer when I was in grade school, where I grew up in Quincy, our local theater would do a summer movie program for kids. And every year, my grandma would buy us tickets for the summer pass. And the one summer, this was one of the movies. It's how I saw the Karate Kid in the movie theater, too. So my memory of seeing this movie is with my grandma. It's a special memory for me. It brings me back to that time when I was a kid and seeing it on the big screen. I mean, Andre the Giant was always larger than life for me, but something about seeing him on the big screen as Fezzik and Ken, like you said, the Errol Flynn-esque sword fight, it made the movie seem even more like a fairy tale to me as a kid than it was. I guess I'm pretty lucky that I got to see it in the movie theater. It was probably a few years after it initially came out. So that's my story. It's a memory that I hold very close to my heart. So there are so many things that make this movie great. And of course, throughout, we're going to talk about scenes and things. But this is a movie that's different than a lot of the movies that we've already covered. This is really a character movie. And so I want to take a little bit of a different approach at breaking the movie down. Let's talk about each character, because I think each character is so interesting that, I don't know, I just find all of the characters fascinating, as from Ingio to Fezzik to Wesley to Buttercup and even Count Rugen. All of these characters are so intriguing. Let's start with Wesley. What are your opinions of Wesley? Well, I think with Wesley, is he's our 80s version of Errol Flynn. When he becomes the Dread Pirate Roberts or the Man in Black, he's got the mustache that looks like Errol Flynn. And the way he presents himself, especially in the sword fight with Indigo, it's just amazing. Not only the sword fighting, which they took months to practice on, but the dialogue between the two. It's just amazing. The way they go back and forth and have a conversation. The respect they have for each other. Right off the bat, yeah, they get more and more respectful of each other once they are sword fighting. And they appreciate each other's art of sword fighting throughout the fight. It's a lot of fun. And to be honest with you, this is my favorite scene of the whole movie. It's believable, but unbelievable at the same time. It balances the art of fencing with comedy and great dialogue. It's the perfect scene. I don't know if I can think of anything that's better than this. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Ken. And the fact how much work it took Mandy Patinkin and Carrie Always to get this down, to be able to do it so effortlessly that they could have the dialogue that you're talking about alongside the swordplay that is extremely intricate. When Rob Reiner and William Goldman, who wrote the, the screenplay in the novel, described it as the greatest sword fight in the history of sword fights, they really did. They put the greatest sword fight on film. I can't think of a better one. And when you hear Carrie Elways and Mandy Patinkin talk, they went through all of those Errol Flynn movies, the Robin Hood, the Three Musketeers, and all of those old movies. And they pieced together little pieces of all of them. And if you listen to somebody who knows fencing, it's completely 100% accurate. 
they do exactly what fencers do when they're competing. Right. Well, so, they're naming defenses that they're right. doing, and those are real defenses against certain type of sword fighting. What's interesting also is, as you were saying, that Rob Reiner wanted the greatest sword fight ever. You know, saying actually they said this was going to be the second best. That the first best was going to be later on when Indigo kills Count Rugen. But this just took the cake. But the interesting about this fight scene was initially it was too short. They were so good that they had to expand on it. Yeah, they got too of, good. Yeah, they did a lot of sword fighting and great job on editing the sword fight. No time do I see any type of stoppage. It all feels so genuine. It doesn't feel like it's pieced together. It really feels like one long piece. Yeah, it feels like the Sam Mendes sequences from 1917 was notoriously all one shot. You can't really picture the if there's any edits. What do you think about Wesley, Eric? That's a great point you bring up, that comparison to 1917. I I never really thought of that, but you're right. It is seamless in that scene where I think it is one take. That's interesting. Uh, Wesley, for me, he is... Ken, you made some some good points. He is kind of like an Errol Flynn character with the sword fight. But before you meet him, when he's on the cliffs of insanity there with the sword fight, you fall in love with him. You realize that this is a truly nice guy. He doesn't have a bad bone in his body, and he loves Buttercup. You can tell he just loves her. And she treats him just like help. Just like garbage. Garbage. <laughs> and he takes it and takes it. And of course, you know, they fall in love. And I think Carrie uh, Elway's portrayal of Wesley throughout the movie is really incredible because after five years, he comes back, he meets her, and he really wants to see if if her love really is true. And he kind of eggs her along a little bit, you know, pretending he's the actual dread pirate Roberts that killed Wesley. Really wants to see if she really is in love with him, if her love is is unending and, and never has. And I love the scene where he's rolling down the hill and goes, as you wish. And she's like, yeah. oh, Wesley. I, I love him. It's, it's a great character. You know what's interesting about his performance? Because I think his performance is extremely underrated. He, he comes off as being a Shakespearean actor in one sense, but the comedy that he delivers is really, really good. You look at when they go into the fire swamp and he's like, you know, maybe I won't build a summer home here, but, yeah. you know, but it, you know, bad. but he, <laughs> but his yeah. delivery is so good. It seems like his delivery is perfect with every single actor that he's working with throughout the movie. Yeah. When he's talking about those big giant mice, I don't think they exist. You know? <laughs> they attack that, that's people. right after he had, yeah, that's right right, after he right. had seen one. His comedic timing is so subtle and funny. It's that kind of, oh, what would you describe it as? It's it's subtle. I don't want to say sarcastic, but it is kind of a little, that sarcastic humor that you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, you really get it after you hear it. Those are some of the elements that I really liked about Wesley, too. We see it in other movies. We see it in Robin Hood, Men in Tights. He knows how to balance the the comic and the seriousness of a, a Robin Hood type of character. We later on see Hot Shots. He kind of plays the Iceman character, but he plays it in a way that's very comedic. He's able to make it funny. He's really a very underrated actor, but he's everywhere. We talked about this earlier offline. He's in so many movies. He's in the movie Saw, which is not a funny movie, but he, he's in that movie. He's uh, Days of Thunder. He shows up in a couple of episodes of the show that I particularly like, Psych. So he's everywhere and he never underperforms. Yeah. Wesley is an awesome character, in my opinion. He feels relatable, but yet you know he's the hero. 
he never makes you feel like he's above you as a viewer. Like he never talks down to you. He's always right there. Like Eric, you said, there's just a hint of sarcasm. Yeah. It's played where you know that he's like the Errol Flynn Robin Hood character, but he also has this wry sense of humor that's very sneaky that he seeps in there every now and then. It's kind of like he's not taking himself seriously. Exactly. And one of the things that I have always found funny after he's been brought back from being partially dead and they're in that sequence when they're trying to uh, hatch their plot to get into the castle and he, I've always been a quick healer. That whole sequence, it has to be perfectly comedically timed. Otherwise it doesn't work. And he hits all of the little marks and even to the point where they put their hands in and he has to do use his whole body to get his hand on the top. It, it makes me laugh. You feel for him. You want him to succeed. It's kind of like the old Zorro TV show, where you know that Wesley is under the mask. It's like he knows that you know that he's underneath there. Well, it's like the Superman character, too, with the glasses. Once Ken puts the glasses on, you don't notice the voice change. Right. (laughs) I think a better homage to Zorro. You have to, like, notice that to get past it. Because a lot of people, even though they love this movie, is like, how does she not know it's her true love? Right. right. It is It is the right. true love. But let's just look at Zorro and his true love didn't realize that he had a mask on. Lois Lane didn't realize Superman with his glasses, you know, with glasses on Clark Kent. Let's just take it for what it is and get past it. It's not that serious. Right. And you go with it and you never think about it. And that's a testament to all of the actors. It's not something that you go, oh, well, that's not believable, you know, because they never let you think about it. You know what I think is really cool, though, about Carrie is with Andre the Giant, their fighting scene. Andre the Giant is not an actor, and his performance actually does show it, though it's fun. You know, the way he delivers the lines is not really good, but again, it's Andre the Giant, so we love it. But the way that Carrie goes along with the scene, it works perfectly with Andre the Giant. There's this conversation going back and forth between them that you're like, you're enjoying it. He's trying to choke him (laughs) to make him pass out while he's like banging his body up against the rock. It has the same type of conversation a little bit that we see in the fencing. And the fact that he's able to do that with each person that he goes up against. It's a mutual respect between all of them. Yeah. I mean, he could have easily just stabbed Andre the Giant. But it's just his acting, the way that he's able to work with other actors and elevate that scene, regardless of who the other person is on the other side. It's almost like he knew, too, that of the three of them, he knew who was pulling the strings. And that's why he knew that he had to get the best of Vizzini, because he knew that Vizzini was probably the guy that was actually the one who was doing something nefarious. Every scene that Carrie always is in, he makes it better because he's such a big part. In my opinion, it's almost a timeless performance that you can't help but like him. That's not an easy thing to pull off. The one nice thing about this movie, like you mentioned it being timeless, is that it's a fairy tale movie. So you don't have to worry about out-of-date references, out-of-date cell phones, out-of-date clothes. The movie itself is timeless. The acting is timeless. The lines are timeless. Anyone who watches it can just sit down and just get sucked into this movie and enjoy it for what it is, a great movie. 
Yeah, this movie could be made in the 1930s. It can be made now. It is the perfect type of movie because it doesn't rely on any type of technology. It's a great story, though I do make fun of it in the plot. You have the grandson who is playing video games with a wireless controller, and wireless controllers were not around in 1987. So, Wesley is the biggest character in the movie, obviously, but Buttercup also plays a huge role in the movie. What did you think of Robin Wright's portrayal of Buttercup, and what about Buttercup as a character? Did you like or not like in particular? I think her character is extremely important, obviously. I mean, this is Robin Wright's first major acting gig. I think she did a, a fairly good job. I don't think it was up to Carrie Ellis's acting in this. Obviously, he was the, the main actor. He was pretty much carrying the role, but she wasn't bad. It didn't blow me away. You probably could have replaced her with someone else and it wouldn't have really changed the movie. I think we like her because Wesley likes her is the main reason. I mean, we see her grow some strength throughout the movie. But at the beginning, she tells him what to do. And we feel like she's bullying him at the beginning. And then when we see her, it's five years later. But to us, it's just a few moments later in the movie. She's already marrying Prince Humperdinck. Her character sometimes feels a little whiny a little bit at first. I mean, granted, she's depressed because Wesley has been killed, her true love. And I just feel like if there was a little bit more backstory on her, maybe I would like her a little bit more. But I think the performance is fine. I think Robin Wright does an okay performance. She pulls off the English accent very well. I think at the time, I think she was 19. I think she was just on a soap opera. Yeah, Santa Barbara. The jump from a soap opera to this role, I think she pulls it off very well. It's just I think the character is not as flushed out as the other characters in the film. I agree with you, Ken. Her character isn't fleshed out. Definitely is Wesley's. She's not the perfect, complete character that somebody like Wesley is, but I think that she is exactly what is needed for this character. She always remains true, but she never takes away anything from the storyline, which could easily be done in a less nuanced performance. Her character, like you said, could be whiny. It could be so much more. It could be so much worse. So in that case, I give Robin Wright a ton of respect. She's an amazing actress. I mean, you don't really have to look much further than her recent turns as in House of Cards. And she was in the Wonder Woman movies. But And she was Jenny from Forrest Gump. She was Jenny from, yeah, she Forrest, was Gump. from Forrest Gump. She, One thing I did like about her, though, was the scene where they are in the fire swamp. And we talked about this just a little bit ago. And he says, wouldn't build a summer home. But she gives him that look. Yeah. Like, yeah. this place isn't, isn't <laughs> what are you yeah. talking about? This yeah. place is a horrid place. And I think that's what I liked about her. She had this, like, strength in her that I did appreciate. I just felt like I would have liked to have seen it more, maybe. She's not your average damsel in distress. She's not a cardboard cutout or paint-by-numbers princess. You know, the only time she's really in distress is when she jumps over the boat to try to escape. Other than that, she pretty much holds on to her strength and her will. Yeah, no, she definitely does. The things that I really like her interactions with Vizzini and with Ingio and Fezzik, too. I think that's where she really shines as a character. When she's having the conversations with the prince, those are always interesting back and forth between those two characters. But when she's being kidnapped and that whole journey, that's always a lot of fun for me. 
See, for me, I think I don't like her in that particular part. I think her character builds. As the movie goes along, I find I like her more and more. It gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And I think actually when she's a prisoner, I think it's a little bit more on the weak side, to be honest. It's when she meets Wesley again and they kind of fight and he threatens to smack her around, which (laughs) I don't know if she deserved that. And then she pushes him down and then they go in the swamp. And then in the swamp is when I feel that things change and I really start liking her because she does play that damsel of distress, but then she does show the strength. She has the dream about the old lady booing her because she had given up true love. And then all of a sudden it just seemed like her character, and for me at least, got stronger. I'm glad you brought that up. No matter how many times I've seen that movie, that sequence where that happens, it gets me every time. And I don't remember that that's a dream sequence. And then when the old lady starts to boo, that's when I go, oh, yeah, that's right. This isn't how this goes. You're telling the story wrong, Grandpa. Come on. Yeah, I, (laughs) I just, I love that. It's one of those crazy things. I don't know why, even to this day, it gets me. I don't know if it's a thing that the story sucks me in and that's what happens. But to this day, until that lady boos, I'm always like, did I miss something? (laughs) So those are really the two main characters. The rest of the characters will tackle kind of in their groups. Of the three groups of characters, you have Miracle Max and his wife. And, of course, you have Vizzini, Engio, and Fezzik. But then you have Count Rugen and Prince Humperdinck. Which one of those three groups of characters do you like the most? It's got to be Vizzini, Indigo, and Fezzik. All three of them work so great together. And they're on screen a little bit more than everybody else. You're supposed to hate them because they are the kidnappers, but they're also very lovable. Even Vizzini, even though he is... You're supposed to hate him like there's no tomorrow. The way that Wallace Shawn performs him, you appreciate it. You love it because of his over-the-top, inconceivable acting. The funny thing about it is Vicini, after everything is said and done, he really turns out to be an idiot, if you think about it. He's supposed to be the mastermind of this group of thieves, but he really is an idiot, which is the most comical part of it. Like Ken said, you fall in love with these guys. They're supposed to be kidnappers and villains, but they all have such an, even Vicini, have such an innocence to them. I mean, Fezzik clearly has an innocence to him. And uh, Nigo Montoya obviously has an innocence to him. He's just out there to avenge his father. He's for the good of everything, really. It's like they kind of got entangled with this guy because they were at the lowest point of their lives and they needed help. They're not obviously, and I use this term loosely, evil as Vicini is, because even him, he almost seems harmless. I know his plan is to kidnap and kill her, but at least when I'm watching the movie, I'm saying to myself, there is no way this plan is going to come together. There's no way that Fezzik or Montoya is going to let Vicini kill her. And now it's just like a comedy of errors watching these guys try and uh, kill Wesley, which is, is half the fun of the movie. I don't think Fazzini, though, is an idiot. I don't think he's... Oh, I he's think he's a very, I think he's a very smart guy. I think the problem idiot. here is that uh, Wesley is much more intelligent no, than Vizzini, he is. Vizzini thinks he is a smart guy. He thinks he's a smart Sicilian. But really, when push comes to shove, he's he's an idiot. I think he's smart, but I think the problem here is what you just said. He knows that he's smart, and I think that's his downfall. He thinks he's so better than everybody else that he doesn't see something coming out of left field and knocking him out. That's the kind of person it is. Because if you look at 
what he does to set everything up, it's kind of smart. Nobody would have known that they kidnapped the princess. It was a smart thing to do. The climbing up the rope, he cuts the rope as soon as he gets up there. There's a lot of things that he does that makes a lot of sense. I'm not sure about the picnic that he had ready for Wesley, because that makes no sense whatsoever. But He's not like a Bond villain, but I guess he's somewhat intelligent. But he thinks he's the smartest guy in the room, and he clearly is not. If you look at it, even Indigo thinks that he's very smart. He is waiting for his orders after he loses his battle with Wesley. He gets drunk. He's waiting for his orders because he does truly believe that he is the smartest guy. But, of course, when he dies, he needs Wesley's help to get revenge. Vizzini, his downfall and his main character quality is his confidence in himself. He may not be the smartest person in the room, but he believes that he is. And that's one of the things that is endearing about him that you guys were talking about. He honestly believes that he's the smartest guy in any room. And that's what makes him kind of endearing, even though he's supposed to be the bad guy. But up until the moment he dies, I always play along with him. And you're right. You never get the feeling that Fezzik or Angua would have actually let Vizzini kill Buttercup. The dynamic of the three of them, it's so neat. It's so um, They're great. And of course, you have the absolute lovable character that Andre the Giant was. And of course, and that comes out in his portrayal of Fezzik. You get a glimpse of this huge man who had such a big heart. Even the first time I saw it, I never considered him a quote-unquote a bad guy. He's supposed to attack Wesley, but his comment, he goes, I want you to feel like you're doing good. That always catches me. The first line was, I missed on purpose, right? Yes. When, yeah. I could have killed you now. Yeah. yeah. Right. I look at this group and I think of Mandy Patinkin and his relationship with Andre the Giant. The way I talked about Elwes and how he interacted with Andre the Giant, Mandy does the exact same thing here with Andre the Giant. Their chemistry together is amazing. Yeah. Love the rhymes. Yes, that's another one of my favorite parts, too. Does anybody want a peanut? Anyone Uh, want want a peanut? (laughs) (laughs) But then, I mean, when you see these two reunite later on, it's awesome. You know, when he looks up and sees that he's there and he compares his hand with Andre the Giant's hand. Right. You know, you just love that these two are back together again. It brings out a genuinely happy emotion that these two guys found each other again. I remember being worried, will they be able to find each other again? Because they endear themselves to you. And Mandy Patinkin is a brilliant actor. His main starrings come on Broadway. He was a big-time Broadway performer. But his portrayal of Ingo is it's perfect to the point where, and this is the same with Vizzini and with Fezzik, there's nobody else I could ever see in any of those parts. And Mandy Patinkin is the Ingo character. While Wesley is definitely our hero, the hero's journey in the movie, because every fairy tale seems to have a hero's journey, the hero's journey is actually Ingo's journey to find the killer of his father. Even to the point where when Fezzik and he are trying to find the cave where Wesley's being tortured and he was partially killed, it's the way that that's framed when Ingo closes his eyes to try to find the entrance to the cave. It's almost Arthurian in its framing, and you get the feeling that there's a higher power behind Ingio. There's something deeper that's driving him than the other characters. Because Wesley's driven by love, of course, but there's something deeper that's driving Ingio. 
he's so much more of a deeper character. That character could be so cardboard and just one dimensional, but there's so many dimensions to that character that we discover that really makes him a really awesome I hate using that word. It makes him such a, a great Enduring character. character. Yeah, yeah, a great character. The one thing that comes to and, mind on that with uh, Anigo Montoya is he could be a guy that is just out for revenge, which he is. He is out for revenge. But you know deep down he has a love of his father. When he's trying to find that cave entrance, he says very Arthurian with the sword and he's trying to mm-hmm. summon his father's power. At the end, when he has a sword fight with the six-fingered man, with Krugan, and Krugan stabs him, first thing he says is, I'm sorry, father, I failed you. It even starts earlier, before they start the fight with Wesley, when he promises that he'll bring him up, he swears on his father, and then he shows him the sword that his father made. You're starting to really respect him. You're starting to already like him. There's even a question here, which one would you want to succeed more? Do you want to see Wesley succeed more, or do you want to see Inigo And you almost, to me, want him to win that fight against Wesley a little bit because you want him to avenge his father. He's right. such a such a likable character, and he already has this great relationship with Physic, and you really, really love him for his love for his father. And we get that so early that it sets up the second half of the movie so well. It does. It really does. And see, and this is the case of Rob Reiner being able to hit the perfect chords. Like you said, Ken, as a viewer... You have this wondering of who do you want more to finish their journey and you're actually torn and you feel that conflict. And I think that's so brilliant on Rob Reiner's part because a character like Ingo could take over the movie, but even though he's quote unquote a secondary character, he feels just as important as the main characters, but it doesn't muddle the movie down. You never feel like you're it's being dragged out or that it just muddies the water around the whole story. Every part of the story fits. A lot of that has to come from the director. I mean, the writer is a big part of that, too. And William Goldman is a brilliant writer. I like how he writes these two different characters, because if you look at it, Wesley, in my opinion, from what I'm watching here, never kills anybody. He doesn't kill anybody. He spares everyone, even Prince Humperdinck at the end, which we're, we're all hoping that Prince Humperdinck gets what he deserves. But Wesley doesn't kill anybody, even though he's the Dread Pirate Roberts. We don't see him actually kill anybody. whereas Indigo basically kills everybody. It allows us to like these two characters in different ways. We see Wesley, there's a heart about him that I don't think any time when he's the uh, Dread Pirate Roberts, I don't think he probably killed anybody as that guy. I just probably right. Yeah, it's a delicate balance that the director has to do between those two characters. And it has to be a testament to Rob Reiner that those two characters, one doesn't get in the way of the other because it's so easily could because their journeys are both so large. And it's funny because most stories, those two journeys would be in one character and it never feels like it should be. It feels like each character is there for a specific reason. It really makes the movie. They're distinct. They're not the same character. They're so different from each other. But there's also the sameness. I mean, they are both great swordsmen. They have honor. Those are the things that they have in common. But everything else, they're really different. Because one is seeking revenge, one is seeking love. His whole life is about love of Buttercup, whereas Indigo's life is all about finding the man that killed his father. father. 
great balancing act and it's yeah. very much appreciated. And, you know, he offers the job as the Dread Pirate Roberts at the end of the film, which probably will suit him fine because he's, he doesn't have a problem with killing people. So <laughs> Yeah, and you also get the feeling that Fezzik's probably going to go along with him. Oh, clearly. Probably. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's if he survives. I mean, let's not forget he was bleeding to death. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a fairy tale thing because, yeah, he took the dagger to the gut. That brings us to the, our two villains, Count Rugen and Prince Humperdinck. What do you think of Chris Sarandon as Humperdinck and as Christopher Guest as Count Rugen? I think Chris Sarandon, um, and I've liked him from Fright Night initially, where he played the vampire. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, I, I just loved him at it. He does bring elegance. I like his acting. I felt like some of the things that his character did didn't make sense a little bit. So like it when he would know how the fencing battle took place and when he fought a giant and and then he knew what Iocane powder was. Some of the things that he was for me didn't pay off later on in the movie. It was like they painted this picture of him being this great bloodhound, just knew everything about everything. And then basically towards the end was kind of an idiot. I thought it, he could have been something even more than what he was. It's not a bad guy, but I just feel like there was just something slightly missing. But that's more of the character rather than the portrayal then? I think so. I, I think Chris Randon does a good job with what he has. But I think, you know, some of the things I just don't get. How he slips up about the ships that he sent to find Wesley. It seems like he's too smart because they've painted him out to be this really smart person. And then like the last third of the film, they made him kind of cartoonish. He is a little bit cartoonish, and that is a little bit of a blind spot. We never really do know what his motivation was. I mean, we know that he wants to be king, and his father, obviously, is old, is going to die, so he's going to be king anyway. We don't know why he wants to start a war with Gilder. They don't right. explain any of this to us, and I think if we knew what his reasons were, it probably would help me hate the character more. I mean, he is getting a way of true love. I guess that is his main yeah, that's his main villainy, is being the person to break up the true love. So what's yeah. Buttercup's deal? She just doesn't want to be alone? Is that what it boils down to? <laughs> it almost seems like she was kidnapped by Humperdinck. I don't know. it. Because you don't know anything about Buttercup's family. It's not like, you know, I'll take care of your family if you marry me. Right. I, it's like, you know, out of, out of the blue, it's like, hey, Wesley's killed by the Dread Pirate Roberts, and now she's marrying Humperdinck. He seems like he has a very elaborate plan for something that we don't know what the motivation is. <laughs> yeah, we don't know why he wants her dead. I mean, a lot of that doesn't make sense. We don't know a lot of her backstory. It seems like she's an orphan. You don't see any parents. You, you never see You never see any of the parents and she orders him around you know and she makes him like polish her saddle so she could see her reflection in it i mean it's up maybe his motivation is that he wants to have a relationship with count rugen well that's what i've always been saying i think there's a, a special relationship in there there are times where you really get the sense that there's like a partner relationship between the two of them. Yeah, Count you know Rugen what? definitely comes off with those feminine qualities when he's talking. Wesley's on the torture machine. He's at, so be honest with me for prosperity. I love it when you come down to watch me work. Right, and right. They have that they have that little interaction there. You have your health. You don't have anything. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yes. And these are all part of the character problems with Humperdinck, but I love Chris Sarandon's portrayal of Humperdinck. I think he brings enough tongue-in-cheek to it, too, that he's not 
overly over the top villain guy. And then of course Christopher Guest is Count Rugen. He's great in anything he does. Christopher Guest is, is, a, is a he's a national treasure, is what it he is. is. I think he, what helps with both of these actors is they know what their place is in their mo- in the movie, and they stay within that place. They don't try to go over the leads because we already have characters in this movie that are already over the top, and if they're over the top, then the leads get lost in the shuffle. And it becomes very campy. And then it's, the whole thing is not believable. And that's one of the things that is so interesting about the movie is this movie is a house of cards. It's so delicate. Everything has to be exactly in place for it to work perfectly. And they all make it work perfectly, in my opinion. Because you're exactly right, Ken. Count Rugen could have been so over the top. I mean, you could see other actors just taking it, ironically. Like, taking like over it the to, top flamboyant? And taking it to 11. You know? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, you're right, Ken. They're dialed right into the lane that they are needed. And they don't go above or even below where they're needed. They fit right into that lane because they so could have been cartoonish. But here's an interesting thing. And I just noticed this doing the research and watching this. I didn't read this anywhere if this is a real thing. You're familiar with Shrek, right? Yes, very much. Donkey. (laughs) Yeah. King Farquaad looks almost acts identically to Humperdinck. He does. And now that I see it, I can't unsee it. They act so much alike. Just as something that I've noticed here recently, that the two characters are so similar. So we could have got John Lithgow to play this uh, instead of Chris Sarandon. I don't know. I like Chris Sarandon in this. I think it's interesting that you bring that up because if you think about it, both kings seem to be liked by their people. It doesn't seem like Prince Humperdinck is disliked by his... In fact, they're very excited to meet who his new bride is. Unless they're so scared of him, they're excited for him just so he doesn't butcher them. But I don't get that in this movie. They, right. they, they like him. He's not the Sheriff of Nottingham or King John from the Robin Hood tales or anything like that. So the last duo that I want to talk about, and we can't talk about all these characters without talking about Miracle Max and his wife. Billy Crystal, his portrayal almost steals the entire movie. There's something about Miracle Max that when he comes on screen, it's just enough of him. Because here's a character that went overdone, boy, is going to be too much. But he fits perfectly right here. It's almost yeah. like Billy Crystal's doing like an SNL caricature of himself. Funny that you bring that up. He brought his costume guy from SNL to do the makeup for Miracle Max. That makes sense. I can see that. And, and didn't he combine them of relatives? He wanted Miracle Max to look like a cross between his grandma and Casey Stengel. The, Casey Stengel. The New York Yankees manager from the 1920s and early 30s. And, and he looks like him. And he, he, does. he does. It's uncanny. There's a lot of things that are perfect about this movie. But Miracle Max is probably the most perfect thing in the movie. Because he's exactly the comedy that you need at the exact right time. But he also fits the fairy tale trope of the wizard that helps the main characters achieve their goal. I think you said it perfectly because if you think about it, he's introduced at a time where all hope is lost because Wesley has just died. Now you have to bring the comic relief to bring people up from watching this death. And what I like about this, and you kind of mentioned this a little bit already, is the timing. He's only in this movie for maybe three to five minutes. 
It's not very long. And what I like about it is once it's done, they don't bring him back. Sometimes movies love to bring back that crazy little character and bring him in at the end of the movie or whatever the case may be. But here, America Max and his wife are just for this little part and that's it. And that's what makes it perfect. And Carol Kane does a great job too here. I mean, she's she's wonderful. We were just talking about her off the uh, air about her role in Scrooge as a ghost of Christmas present. He should axe out uh, Bill Murray with a uh, toaster. Look, it's a toaster. If you haven't seen Scrooge out there, people, see Scrooge. It's a winner. Oh, yeah. They work together really well, but I know some people that think sometimes that Billy Crystal can be a little bit too much, but here it's the right amount. And I know they were thinking about Mel Brooks doing this part, but then it would be a Mel Brooks movie and that would take away from, I think, everything else that the movie was. Not not saying there's nothing wrong with a Mel Brooks movie. We all love Mel Brooks here. Let's be honest. This, <laughs> if, if Mel Brooks would have been in it, it would people would have been thinking Spaceballs. Like exactly what Eric. I was going to say, Eric. He would be Billy yogurt. Would, yeah. You can see, though, the little bit of the performance that Billy Crystal does do is very Mel Brooks-like. Very Mel Brooks. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the old Jewish mannerisms that Mel Brooks and Billy Crystal and those guys do. It fits so perfectly. In fact, I think I read somewhere where Billy Crystal said that he based a little bit of this on the 2,000-year-old man. Oh, it makes all the sense in the world. I could see that, yeah. It it really does. I wait for that part of the movie every time because I love it so much. There are times if I'm in the right mood, I'll even rewind it and I'll watch it again. And Carol Kane is so amazing. And she only has maybe like a minute on screen. Carol Kane is one of those actresses where she's always a bit part actress, but whatever she's in, she's gold. Right. There's so many different lines from just the Miracle Max portion that are so quotable. It makes me happy just thinking about it. It's just the weird things that they say that make the cut. Like she talks about, don't go into the water an an hour after taking the pill. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) A a good hour. The the throwaway lines, but the way they perform them, it was so natural they kept them in in it. From what I heard, Billy Crystal and Carol Kane were just throwing all these stuff all over the place. And we were talking about this earlier. Rob Reiner was like laughing. He had to to remove himself. He had to remove himself from set. He could not stay there because he kept ruining every take. And Mandy Patankin said the only injury he suffered on the entire movie, he hurt his ribs just from trying to stifle laughter because he couldn't keep it together while Billy Crystal was on camera. Imagine Carrie Elways. He hurt himself trying not to laugh. He's supposed to be playing dead or partially dead. Um, Almost dead. I've seen worse. Can you imagine how hard that would have been? Trying to, to keep have a been... face. And you know you can't do anything. There's nothing that's not perfect about that scene. Just thinking about it. I wish you could see my face. It's a huge smile on my face. It makes me happy. When he's talking about true love, but then he refers it to a sandwich. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a, a good MLT, mutton, lettuce, and tomato, where the, where the mutton is just mm, so straight. Mutton yeah. is lean and the tomatoes are ripe. It is perfect. It might be my favorite line in the whole movie is that reference to true love and comparing it to a sandwich. And now that we've kind of come to the end of talking about the different characters, but even the small characters really hit exactly what they're supposed to be doing. You take the guy who plays the bishop that's marrying them. Peter Peter Cook. 
that makes me laugh every time. Yeah, I quote that all the time. Marriage. It makes me laugh. And of course, Humperdinck's dad, the king, when they're walking back after she tells him that she's going to go commit suicide. And his response is, is she kissed me. <laughs> All of those characters fit so well, and they're just brought together. And it really has to be, like I said before, it has to be a testament to Rob Reiner and William Goldman, how they brought this together. All of these characters, even the smallest character, hits just the right note. Well, here's an example of that, the albino, Mel Smith. When he comes in, and this is a good example of Rob Reiner is an actor's director. Mel Smith has a small part here. He doesn't have many lines, but the first line he comes up and he, he's like, well, I'm going to do the business, man. And then he coughs and he actually gets back into his normal voice. Well, that was all Mel Smith. And it might be a little cheesy, but Rob Reiner is like, go with it. But here's the thing is, the part is so small. And Mel Smith, I've seen him in a thing called Brain Donors that I enjoyed a lot. But he is not a big name actor, at least not here in the States. And to allow him to kind of do his own thing just says a lot about Rob Reiner and his directing style. You're exactly right. It's just one of those wonderful things that the way it all came together. Little Fred Savage, who was at the top of his game in 87 with the Wonder Yards. I'm glad you brought that up. You can almost forget that one of the most endearing parts of the movie is the relationship between the grandson and his grandfather. It's genuine. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's an affection there. And Peter Falk, he's not the greatest actor. He's Columbo in everything he does. He's, he's Columbo. Yeah. But you know, he's that guy that you know. Well, when you see him and you know him, and he's there's an affection there. Yeah. You have this affection for him immediately. It's funny because I guess when Peter Falk got the role, he wanted to have. Because he and, yeah, he and um, yeah. Rob Reiner knew each other, and Rob Reiner didn't have the heart to tell him that he didn't need prosthetics to look old. He's 60 and years old at this he's time. He's 60 years old. I guess they did put prosthetics on him and got him all dressed up, and he looked at himself, and he's like, oh, we can't be doing that. He goes, that's horrible. And Rob Reiner agreed with him. And I think that's a testament to the person that Rob Reiner is. He didn't want to make somebody feel bad. You know what I mean? He would take their suggestions and show them that it works or doesn't work. I think that's right. why, like I said before, he's such a great an actor's director. He wants to get that feedback and he wants you to do your thing. I think that's what shines about this movie is he lets these actors play the part that they want to play it. It's a great movie. It really is. Yeah. Like I said, how I seen the movie, I have a warm, soft spot for the grandfather and grandson in uh, relationship because it's kind of how I saw the movie was with my grandma. You know, early on in this, too, when you're watching it, you know, the grandson wants nothing to do with his grandfather. Right. He's like, Just tell him I'm whatever sick or something. And by the end of the movie, he's like, when are you coming back, grandpa? Ends perfectly with... As you wish. With as you wish. It couldn't end any more perfectly there. Which and, is funny because it wasn't the original ending. In fact, they had to go back and reshoot yeah. that part. That part actually doesn't match up to the actual room that they were right. doing the story in. I find that very interesting that they had to make that change up. Yeah, the original end of the movie saw Fred Savage take, like every kid probably did, 
take his flashlight after his mom turns out the light. He gets under the covers and starts reading the book again. And Fezzik and Buttercup and Wesley and Ingo come to him on their horses. So as he's kind of like reliving, the characters are coming back to him. And that's another way that I can connect with the Fred Savage character. I love that part about reading books to this day, that I can get that feeling that the characters are real. I'm happy, though, they didn't do that, because that would, for me, be like a never-ending story ending to the movie, and I think it ends perfectly. I think if you do it like that, it brings a little cheesiness. This movie has some cheese in it, but it's well-balanced, and to lay that on there at the end would just be too much. Miracle Max would probably call it schmaltzy. 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 So one of the things that, amazingly, the three of us haven't talked about, um, because we've been talking about all the characters, but the fact that Mark Knopfler from The Dire Straits is the one who did the score and, of course, the song that every 80s movie had. Wasn't he nominated for, like, a, a Grammy? If he wasn't, he should have been. He was nominated for an Oscar. For the, it was the only thing that was nominated for an Oscar. Was the score? Yeah. Was the song at the end? Every 80s movie had a great song at the end on the credits. I mean, there's not a single one <laughs> that I can think of. I'm not a big fan of this song, though. To no. be honest with you, I think it's kind of. I eh. don't know. I kind of. I mean, like the it. music for the film itself is great. I think everything it is. is is really perfect. And the funny thing is the hat that Rob Reiner wore in This Is Spinal Tap, the agreement was that he would do the music if Rob Reiner somehow put that hat somewhere in the film. That he wore in this is Spinal Tap, and you could see it in grandson's room. And it's like the USS. Him. It's one of the ships. Yeah. Oh, it's in his grandson's room. Okay. Yep. I even like the score. It adds that little bit of fairy tale storytelling to me. Like when Ingo's chasing Count Rugen, and he runs into the closed door, and the the score goes broom along with him. And that happens certain times throughout the movie where the score will act like a sound effect almost for what's going on on screen. That always makes me smile to myself. Do you guys think the same thing or do you think I'm just a big dork? You are a big dork, but I do like the score. The score for this movie. Did Mark Knopfler do the whole score? Yeah, he did. Okay. Yes. I'm yeah. And the, the end credit song, eh, not great, but the musical score for the movie is perfect. By 80s song movie standards, it's not bad. I still sing along to it every time. So. All right. I guess I should be upfront and honest. I'm not the biggest Dire Straits fan, so that probably uh, plays a little bit I'm not, I'm not either, but I like the song. I don't know. <laughs> it's not a very Dire Straits song. I'm not a real Mark Knopfler fan, so... So we've talked a lot about all the scenes that we liked. Is there any other scenes that you wanted to discuss that we haven't really went over? I think the scene where Wesley is still like unable to move when they go after Humperdinck and they go after Count Rugen and hangs Wesley up on on, <laughs> on the statue while yeah. he goes and breaks down the door. <laughs> These little touches. Fezzik comes and he just he taps on the door and it knocks it down. And then when he comes back and tries to find Wesley, the look on Andre the Giant's face is absolutely perfect. He looks around like, where is he? Where did he go? <laughs> he goes off. <laughs> He doesn't really look for him a whole lot. He gets some horses, but why would he? Why was he thinking about? Oh, you know what? This would be a good time to get some horses. <laughs> my favorite scene, Hi, lady. Is the most dramatic scene, probably in the whole movie, in my opinion, is where um, Anigo Montoyo finally faces Count Rugen and kills him. 
give me back my father, you son of a bitch, and just stabs him. I mean, that's like the most violent scene in the movie, but it's the most compelling scene to me, that whole build up to it. If you're with a bunch of people, you cheer at that point because you're so happy that he got him. But what he did before that was, I think, great how they set that up because they're about ready to fight and Rugen runs away. Right, right. I think it's great that they established that he's somewhat of a coward. And I think him running away and then being defeated the way he did, it works really well. I would have actually liked to have seen a little bit more battle. I would have liked to have seen an actual real sword play without the dagger in his gut first. Yeah. Just to kind of give us that greatest sword moment that they were talking about. But at the end, that's the person you want to die because he's the one that killed the father. Right. I don't know. I kind of disagree with you a little bit there, Ken, because I think that... Inconceivable. I know, right? Inconceivable. It fits what it needs to be because we already had the great fencing sequence between he and Wesley. I think this serves the purpose of what it needs to be. I here again, we got the little suspension of disbelief in a fairy tale that he gets stabbed in the gut and is still able to best Count Rugen. I think it fits exactly what it was. You had a few different things going on there at the same time, and you don't want to take away from Wesley and Buttercup's confrontation with Humperdinck. That scene kind of lacked a little bit with Humperdinck and Wesley at the end. I think it's, in one way, it's really ingenious how they ended that Mm -hmm. with him not being fully at strength. But at the same time, you kind of want Humperdinck to get more than what he got. All that happened to him was he got tied up, basically. It doesn't sound like there's any punishment because he takes Buttercup away, but he's still the prince and there's... Yeah, he'll be humiliated. But how will he be humiliated? Because nobody else knows what happened but them. I don't think Wesley is going to go out and publicize what he did to Prince Humperdinck. I just feel like there needed to be more of a punishment for Prince Humperdinck for what he's done because... That'll be a long-awaited sequel. Yeah. Like I said, there's just no real punishment for him. He doesn't love Buttercup. Him taking Buttercup away doesn't really matter to him too much. All he cares about is his war, and that war doesn't get started. We don't know why he wants to go to war. If we knew why, then maybe I can see why the punishment of that war not starting pays off. But we we just don't know why. Does it cost him his kingship? What is the reason for the war? Who knows? I mean, granted, they might have killed his lover. I think they did establish that it was to make money. I'm pretty sure that that was established. I think that was the whole meaning behind it. I'm pretty sure, if memory serves me correct. But he could also just get another girl and have her killed off and start the war. You know, like I said, there's any real punishment, which I guess you don't need because in the end, all you really care about really is Wesley and Buttercup being together and that Indigo has got his revenge. And that's what the movie is truly about. And Fezzik's happy. and he's happy all of the actors have said that they've realized what a cultural phenomenon the princess bride has become all of the actors have said that when fans come to see them like mandy patankin famously has said that there isn't a day in his life that goes by that he doesn't get at least one person coming up to him and saying my name is ingil montoya you killed my father prepare to die If you were able to see one of the actors on the street, which one would you want to see and what would you quote a line to them and what what line would it be? I'd do Billy Crystal and do Have Fun Storming the Castle. I would do uh, Carrie Elwes and I wouldn't. You'd say As You Wish to Carrie Elwes? I wouldn't probably say anything from the movie to him. 
I would just like talk with him. He seems like a guy that is probably intellectually fascinating. Rumor has it he's working at uh, Barnes and Noble on Fifth uh, and Main, so you can probably go see him. Mine would probably be Mandy Patankin, and my name is Ingo Montoya. If there was a guy that I would want to meet, it would probably be Mandy Patankin, if not Rob Reiner. If it was Andre the Giant back when he was still alive, yeah. you'd have to be worried about some of the things that Andre the Giant would make you do, like drink a lot. Carrie Elwes, he hurt himself. Was it Dune Buggies? Yeah. In fact, the scene that before they uh, roll down the hill, he is already hurt there. And when he goes and sits down, he's gingerly sitting down. But he does it in a way that you can't tell that there's something Mm -hmm. wrong. It also shows in the fire swamp. And he didn't even tell Rob Reiner for a little bit that he got hurt because he was afraid that, you know, this is his first major film that he's got a starring role in. He doesn't want to mess it up. But Andre the Giant would have been somebody interesting to me because of how much alcohol the man consumed. It's crazy. Yeah, that's pretty legendary. I don't know. It it makes my heart hurt for the person that Andre was, but he loved doing this movie. And there was one time, I can't remember which person caught him on set. He was just sitting there and he had a big smile on his face and they asked him why he was so happy. And his answer was so wonderful. It was, here, nobody looks at me funny. I always feel bad for Andre the Giant. Imagine you're that big, how difficult life must be. When he was in Hollywood and he was on the set, he got to be normal almost. An interesting fact about Andre the Giant was he didn't read English. They had to record his lines audio-wise so he can listen to his lines and then be able to say them later. In fact, he messes up the line when they go to Miracle Max and he goes, I'll call the Bruce Squad. And he goes, I'm on the Brute Squad. He was supposed to say, I am the Brute Squad. But Billy Crystal corrected him and they kept it in the movie. I'm glad they did. It's interesting to me that when you hear the, all of these actors, and they've had a couple of reunions, they all have the same love and respect. And you can tell that Andre not being with us anymore, it affects them when they get together. And when they talk about him, they almost all get teary-eyed <laughs> when they talk about him. They loved him so much. I think that's a testament to the person that Andre the Giant was. As if I couldn't love the movie anymore. When you hear these people talk about somebody like Andre the Giant, it it really is endearing. Yeah, everybody seems to have a lot of great things to say about each other. They talk about Robin Wright's beauty, that she had Mm -hmm. this elegance of beauty. So they really professionally lift each other up. Mm -hmm. One thing that we didn't talk about, this is a, a very quotable movie. There's so many quotes in here that we haven't even come close to even going over some of these quotes. But one of my favorite quotes was, you've fallen for one of the two classic blunders. The first being, never get involved in a land war in Asia, but only slightly lesser known, never going against a Sicilian when death is on the line. Yeah. And then, of course, he dies. There's just yeah. so many wonderful lines in this movie. Does all these lines come from the book? Or is some of these lines just by somebody else? The person who wrote the book also wrote the screenplay of this. Right, movie. right. William Goldman. I don't know. This is one of those rare occasions where I've not read the book in comparison to the movie. I do understand that there are major differences. I've tried to read the book, and I'll be perfectly honest in saying the reason I couldn't get into the book was because the movie for me is so ingrained in my mind that the book being different, it was too much for me, and I've never been able to get into the book. So I do apologize in that sense. You just don't want it to alter your great memory of this movie. 
Yeah, I, there's no way I can't. The differences are so are too drastic to start off with in the book that I couldn't do it. I actually was hoping that the book would have been the book that the grandfather was reading to the grandson. That's kind of what I was hoping the book was going to be. I never could get over my own hangups on that. That's okay. So wrapping up, we have a few final thoughts. Does this movie hold up for you guys? Oh, incredibly. Yes, of course. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Like I said earlier, it could be made at any type of decade. It's just the perfect storybook movie. It's probably I, I one of the greatest agree. movies to show with the whole family. Definitely. And I'm so glad that there was universal condemnation for any attempt to remake the movie. This is a movie that should never be retouched, ever. So there was yeah, this big uproar because they were talking about remaking The Princess Bride. And it's funny because during COVID, you had kind of a homemade remake. Some of it's pretty good. Jack Black is on like steps. Yes. Pretending it's, it's, yes. it's a mountain. Yeah. If you get a chance, you guys, you should see if you can check it out on YouTube. It's the Princess Bride home movies. You could tell that all of the actors who participated in that for charity, they've had so much fun. And that's the thing, too, about the movie. All of those actors wanted to do this. Didn't have to be asked. They came and sought it out when they heard that it was going to happen. This movie resonates with so many people. The great thing about this movie is there's no egos on this set. No. And what's interesting is, you know, you have this love for this movie by the actors and the audience, but it took forever to get it made. They went and presented this to multiple studios. it's because the book is so complicated. I don't want to end the the podcast by talking bad about the book, but the book is so complicated, The what I did get through of it. I think there's a, a book of The Princess Bride that's like the highlights, which is basically the movie. If it wasn't for Rob Reiner's company, and Norman Lear was a big reason for us having this made, because it was in a number of different studios, and some studio heads were let go, so they didn't go forward. Robert Redford was supposed to play Wesley. Robert Redford's production company at one point had the rights to the book. I can't even. And I love Robert Redford. This is not a Robert Redford role. not a Robert Redford role. In fact, I believe the the writer of the book bought the rights back and then gave it to Carl Reiner, who then passed it along to his son, because the son was a big fan of the book, and that's how this all got made. Another thing that we can thank Norman Lear for is uh, funding for The Princess Bride. So as we're coming to an end here, why don't we uh, give out some final grades and analysis? You want to start, Eric? Sure. I got to say, this movie pretty much hits everything I'm looking for in a movie of this caliber and this magnitude. It has great acting. It has great cinematography. It's funny. Everyone looks like they're having a good time making this movie. You can see it in the production. You can see it in the acting. The plot is good. Nothing is overdone. I really cannot think of anything that would give this a negative role. I mean, it's great for everyone. I've never to this day, I have never met anyone who has disliked this movie. Everyone I've ever spoken to has said, I love The Princess Bride. I've never met anyone who said, I hate it or "Eh, it's okay, it's mediocre. Everyone loves this movie. I give it an A. Solid A. It's funny, Eric, that you brought that up. When we were talking about doing the podcast, this was one of the movies I knew in my heart I had to talk about. So, Ken, what is your final review and analysis? 
It's interesting when we talked about putting this podcast together, me and Ted were brainstorming. At first, it was going to be an 80s podcast. And the initial name of it was going to be the Inconceivable 80s Podcast. So this tells you how important this movie is to us. This movie doesn't make any wrong turns. This movie is perfectly cast. The performances are exactly what they should be for each character. Nobody tries to outdo their character. They stay within themselves. That's what makes it so remarkable. It's hard to even pinpoint exactly why I love this movie so much because there's so many things. There's the quotable lines. There's the characters. And like I said, there's the direction. And it's written very well. The only gripe I have about it is Prince Humperdinck's motive to go to war. If I knew a little bit more about that, maybe it would be better. Maybe it wouldn't be. But that's the only thing that, that always in the back of my mind. Why does he want to kill Buttercup? I don't understand. But it's one of those movies, again, I wish I would have seen it in the theater when it first came out. But my experience watching it on cable is probably one of the best experiences I've ever had watching a movie on just regular TV. And so on that note, it's an A. It's my first A that I've given on any of our movies so far. And I'm happy there wasn't a sequel. I'm happy it ended exactly the way it did. Maybe there's a little cheese, like I said earlier in this, but it's the right amount of cheese. It just seems like the right amount of everything, the right amount of action, romance, comedy, everything is exactly where it needs to be. And it makes it pretty much a perfect movie. So yes, an A. Well, that's some high praise coming from Ken. I'll finish up with my grade and analysis. It's no secret that this is an A-plus for me. If there was a, a way to make it any higher than an A-plus, I probably would go there. This movie touches my heart in so many ways. It's too numerable to count. There isn't one aspect of this movie that I don't love. Even the eels, <laughs> the rats of unusual size. The story is close to perfect as you could possibly get. And when anybody brings up Rob Reiner, the first thing that comes to my mind is The Princess Bride, even more so than his role on All in the Family or Stand By Me. Even the actors, when I think of Mandy Patinkin, I think of Ingo Montoya. These characters are, to me, are timeless. It's a modern-day fairy tale, in my opinion. It's a perfect fairy tale. We got to experience the creation of a true fairy tale, whereas all the fairy tales had already been told years ago by the Brothers Grimm or in other places. But this is the creation of a true, real fairy tale in our own time. And I get lost in it every time. I'm thrilled that I get to share this with my daughter, and that makes me happy again on another level. So that's where I stand on it. And there isn't more than a month or two that goes by that I don't watch it. I feel weird if I haven't watched it in a couple of months. That's how much I, I rewatch this movie. So as we wrap up here, I think we're going to be leaving the balcony. What's going to be coming up next, Ken? Our next movie will be hosted by Eric, and it's going to be When Harry Met Sally. Oh, yeah. I can't wait for that. I would explain more to you, but I would need to use small words and so you could understand. And hmm. You warthog-faced buffoon. Uh, I'll have what she's having. Well, friends, thank you for joining us for our review of The Princess Bride. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I know I have. My compatriots, I'm sure they had just as much fun as I did. So this is me signing off, saying, have fun storming the castle. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
You think they're going to make it? Uh, it's going to take a miracle. Do they have Bye-bye. a bye? <laughs>